Satan is a liar and a murderer, and he was from the beginning. Satan will often tempt us to believe something is going to provide for us pleasure or joy or satisfaction. And then once we believe the lie and partake, it's true there may be a temporary time of joy or satisfaction or pleasure only to be followed with the realization that it did not deliver what was promised. Now here's the thing that happens oftentimes next. The lie comes, we believe it, we participate in the lie, or act out the lie, then we realize it doesn't really satisfy, and then the liar comes and condemns us for believing what he told us. You ever had that happen? Right? You act in a way that you know is in rebellion to God, then you think for a moment it's good, then there might be some temporary satisfaction, and then the liar comes and says, I can't believe you did that. (laughs) And you call yourself a Christian? And you say you love God? Or to somebody who's not a believer, also then they realize that the temptation did not provide the desired results. And so then the liar says, well, really what you need to do is you need to do it again and you need to do it more, knowing good and well that the more we rebel against God without repentance, the harder our hearts become and the more distant we become to God. This is the nature of the lie. Eventually we become so hard-hearted that repentance becomes extremely difficult. So Satan is a liar. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, I would like to um, just make a few comments on on my approach. On Wednesday night we've uh, discussed some of these things, but I've never really discussed it much with you all here on Sunday mornings. As as we look at the book of Revelation, there are numerous ways and numerous uh, approaches to the book. For instance, probably one of the more popular ways that um, people have approached the book of Revelation, or at least um, the most, I, I think the most common way that people have approached the book of Revelation in our day is that the... Material from chapter 4 all the way to the end um, is are events that are yet to occur. In other words, they are events that are going to happen sometime in the future. Most who would hold this view, not all, I'm just going to speak broadly, most would say that these are events that are going to occur in the last seven years of the history of mankind. So that this book, or the chapters 4 through... Um, especially 19 are events that are going to happen in, uh, to a generation future to us or to a group of people future to us perhaps some of us will live during that time but up until now nobody has lived in that time and it will be a future series of events that will occur and that a, a group of people will endure and then in chapter 20 Christ returns and yay 
along kind of the, the opposite side of that is uh, there, there is a, a group of individuals who would not hold that the, the primary perspective of the book of Revelation is future, but rather that it's past. In other words, chapters, pretty much chapters 6 through 19 aren't things that are going to happen in the future, but they're things that have already happened in the past. That they have been, uh, they, they happened during, uh, during 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem. And there are a number of, of good arguments to, to hold to that view. And probably the strongest argument is John says, these are things that are going to happen soon. Or 2,000 years away from it. Is that soon? So that would be one of the primary arguments. Now, most of those who would hold to that, um, that these events occurred in the past, the majority of them would say that chapters 20, the return of Christ, and the new heaven and new earth are still future. Then, another option of considering the book of Revelation is that the events that occur between chapters 4 through 19 don't describe any specific period of time. That they are events that occur and are common to all points of time. That regardless of what period of, of history you live in, you will deal with that there, there may be oppression for your beliefs. There may be persecution for your beliefs. That Christians throughout the course of history, from the time Christ rose again to the time he comes again, are, are experiencing the challenges and the difficulties of what it means to follow Christ. And that there are beasts and governments that have restricted the people of God from worshiping God. And that there are cultural forces that um, pressure believers to abandon their faith in Christ. There are some other ways of looking at the book of Revelation, but I'll let you look at those yourself. I bring this up because I, uh, I take the latter approach. I haven't always taken the latter approach. In fact, in 2001, I taught the book of Revelation on uh, Wednesday night. And I taught it from the, the perspective that all of the events, at least from chapter 4 through chapter 19, all, are, are all future and will occur primarily in the last seven years of mankind's history. I had problems with it. I've always had some problems with it. And um, eventually, through, through studies, I came to the, the conclusion that, um, that the book of Revelation is not a book limited to somebody who's going to live in the last seven years of history, but it is a book that is applicable to you and me right now. If you are whatever you are enduring, whatever you fear, this book will give you hope right now today. And I want to make that clear because so many people today... Now, I can just give you my experience. That's all I can do. My experience was when I became a Christian and I went to church and I heard people talk about this book. The only approach I heard was this was a future event. So I didn't know nothing else. I didn't know there was any other way. I thought it was settled science. I need to explain to you my approach so that if you 
have never heard of a different way of looking at this. I don't confuse you. You don't say, wait a second, I thought something that I'm not teaching. I want you to also understand that there are good and godly people in all of those camps. This is not a matter of division. This is not a matter that should separate us from fellowship. This is not a matter that should um, puff us up as though I've got it all figured out and you don't. And one of these days when you get really spiritual, you will agree with me. We have all of those camps represented in our church and all of those who hold to one of those views are brothers and sisters in the Lord because we are brothers and sisters in the Lord not based on our understanding of the book of Revelation but our understanding of the sacrificial uh, blood of Christ. So you need to understand that but I want you to understand my perspective because it may be a little different from what is sometimes popularly or commonly taught. So you should be aware of my viewpoint. And it's not as though I don't believe there is any, nothing future. I believe that all of these things will happen. There are future aspects to much of the book of Revelation. Certainly chapter 20, when Christ returns, is future. All right? I know that because he's not here yet. And this is not the new heaven and new earth. Come quickly. So, with that disclaimer out of the way, we now come to Revelation chapter 9, and we have to ask ourselves the question, what in the world is going on in Revelation chapter 9? Oh my goodness, did anybody read this chapter? I mean, come on. We got swarms of locusts that have men's faces and women's hair and scorpion's tails. We have fire-breathing horses that have faces like lions. We've got armies of 200 million soldiers coming across the Euphrates River. What in the world is this all about? It's an interesting chapter. It is one that no doubt is difficult to understand. But I think if we use the analogy of Scripture, which is that Scripture interprets Scripture, it may be difficult but not impossible. And I, so we, we are not going to end up, let me just give you a little jump ahead. We will not end up with the conclusion that these swarms of locusts are Huey helicopters. All right? Hal Lindsey and many others would say these are Huey helicopters that John sees this vision, doesn't know what category to put them in, so he describes a future technology with language that he has. In some ways, that makes a lot of sense. And these fire-breathing horses are not tanks and planes because we do not look to future technology on how to interpret the Scripture. We look to Scripture to interpret the Scripture. And I think if we do that, we can at least get a handle on what's going on. We may not be able to um, resolve every detail that you may have. But I think we can get a good handle on it because Scripture tells us what's going on here. John is very, very... He uses images from the Old Testament constantly in this book. So it does us well to go back to the Old Testament and see the images that he's using to help us understand what he's talking about. And so, as we consider what is going on, we will look at 
the Bible to help tell us what is going on. Let me just give you a little bit of a preview and why this is an important chapter. I mean, when you read this chapter, you're going, why do I need to know about locusts with women's hair and breastplates and armor and horses that look like lions? And Why do I need that? There are going to be a couple of things that I think are crucial for us are crucial to understand. And the first one, we need to understand that God is in control. And we're going to see that over and over in this chapter, that history is in God's hands. And that history is going towards His end. And God has planned an end for history, and God has planned the means to get us to that end. God has planned that Jesus will return and Jesus will judge the living and the dead and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Do you believe that? Well, then do you believe that God has made, created the means to get us there? Or is this some sort of haphazard, well, I've created the end, but I don't know how we're going to get there. I just hope it all works out. No, God has created the end. God has created the means. We're going to be looking at some of the means by which we're going to get to that end. God is sovereignly in control of history. We are also going to see why you need to be a follower of Christ. This chapter clearly tells us that following Christ is your only hope for deliverance from the end that God has prepared, at least the negative end that God has prepared. So let's go ahead and I'll read the first part of Revelation chapter 9. And then we'll spend some time looking at it and we'll go go through this chapter. Then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of irons, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They had tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. And they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So you'll recall last week we saw the first four trumpets were sounded. This is the second cycle of judgments that we'll see. There's three cycles of judgment in the book of Revelation. And um, the second cycle, the first is the trumpet cycle, and the first four trumpet cycles, 
sounded, and then an angel came and said, there are three woes coming. The next three trumpets are going to be, bring three woes. And so we see this fifth trumpet, or, or the first woe. And what we see, or John says, that a star had fallen from heaven, and to him was given the keys of the bottomless pit. The first thing we should probably take note of is the way John says this, is that he does not see a star falling. He uses what's called uh, in the Greek the perfect tense. It is a star that had fallen. It is an event that had happened in the past, but has present um, ramifications. It's still currently true. Um, it's still something that he sees, or still something that's going on. And so John had, there was a star that had fallen. And of course, then. And the star was given a key to the bottomless pit. So, of course, then we have to ask ourselves, what is this star? Did John see a meteorite fall from heaven? Or a meteorite that had fallen and was still fallen? And was this meteorite given the keys to the bottomless pit? Well, as you know, we take things as I am approaching the text of Revelation, we take things symbolically, unless they are definitely literal. And so our first thing to do is to understand that I don't believe this is a star or a meteor or some sort of rock from outer space. For one reason, this star is given a key and this star opens the bottomless pit. I guess we could have a star with hands and fingers and able to do that. But here's what we see. Again, let's use scripture to interpret scripture. And stars are often identified with angels in the Bible. In fact, in Revelation, Jesus held in his stars, in his hands, seven stars. What were those seven stars? Seven angels. We see Satan in Isaiah 14 being called Star of the Dawn. And so we see stars being used in the Bible um, to represent angels. In fact, we see stars in the very book of Revelation, just a few chapters earlier, to refer to angelic beings. And so, it makes perfect sense then for us to identify this star as some sort of angelic being who had fallen and was given a key to open the bottomless pit. So, of course, then we have to ask, then, um, is this a good angel or a demonic angel? And I won't get into all of the details of that. I think it's some sort of fallen demonic angel. You can disagree with me there, but I'm going to go ahead and just say it's some sort of demonic power, some sort of demonic force that had fallen and was given the key to open up this bottomless pit, this angel being now cast down um, inflicts torment upon those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It is important for us to understand something about this angelic being, this unidentified angelic being. He has no inherent authority. He does not have authority to open this pit. He does not have authority over this bottomless abyss. He was given a key to do this. He was given authority to do this. Now, if you recall, quite some time ago, back in chapter 1, 
We saw that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority. Not, not some demon. Not hell. Not Satan. Jesus has authority over life and death. Jesus has the keys to life and death. Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. They are given... That authority is given to this star that had fallen for the purpose of opening up this pit. And when this pit is opened, out comes, of course, a great cloud of smoke. And then out of this comes this incredible onslaught of locusts. Now, for us to understand this idea of locusts, we don't deal with locusts. I mean, we don't really deal with locust swarms too, too much. Certainly not like they did um, in the days in which John was writing or previous. In fact, even I think in about 1889, um, the country of Algiers was just overcome with a locust swarm and just devastates everything. Folks, locusts eat everything. And so, when we consider this plague that is coming upon people at this time, certainly a plague of locusts takes us to two places in Scripture. And the first one, of course, it takes us back to the Exodus. And we talked about how these trumpet blasts echo what was going on in the book of Exodus. They mirror the plagues that that befell the people of Egypt prior to the setting free of the people of God. And all of these things were brought forth so that the people of God would be released and God would bring them into the land of promise. So certainly we see that. But we also see um, in the book of Joel, if you read Joel chapter 2, you're going to see this reference to all sorts of different types of locusts that come upon the land. And there's some, some discussion as to whether or not these are literal locusts in the book of Joel or whether the locusts in the book of Joel are talking about um, invading armies. Regardless of what position you may hold, here's what is certain. That whatever these locusts are in the book of Joel, they destroy all of the vegetation. What happens when there's no food? Famine. Famine is the result of locusts. So we see these Old Testament pictures, these Old, Old Testament allusions, and then we come forward and say, what's going on here with these locusts? Well, first of all, we would have to say that these are not natural locusts. They're not like ones you're going to find in your backyard or anywhere in the world. At least I don't think so. I've never seen a locust with a crown on his head with hair like a woman and teeth like a lion and breastplates and faces like a man. This is some sort of demonic plague. Some sort of demonic horde that comes out of this bottomless pit. And I think the idea of famine is still, is still in view because when an ancient person would read about locusts, what's going to come to their mind is famine. We should also note something about this particular plague. That the first four trumpets 
When they sounded, it only indirectly affected man or people. These two that we're going to look at today directly affect human beings. The first one's, you know, like water, fresh, you know, poison, fresh water. Well, men were affected, but it wasn't a direct plague on mankind. This one here is going to be a direct plague on mankind. And so those who happen to survive the first four trumpets realize the barrenness of their souls or more specifically the famine in their souls. The locusts cause and reveal the hunger of their souls. Here's what happens. The shallowness of their worldview the shallowness of their philosophy and the meaningless of life becomes exposed. When governments are shaken, when life resources dwindle, when your friends die seemingly needlessly, to what do you cling and to what will you hope in? And what will sustain you? Those who have turned away from God's law and from God's purposes. Who believe that lie. That you do not need God. That you do not need the God of the Bible. The living and true God that you can do things without him and that you are perfectly fine on your own will last for a while. But when everything collapses around you, to what will you cling to? We read in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east they will go to and fro, but the word of, to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. There is a famine that is much greater than a famine for bread. There is a famine for truth. And the lie is is that you can abandon the truth of God's word and you'll be okay. But these demonic, this demonic horde that comes forth that produces famine, not a famine. You'll notice that this particular locust does, these particular locusts don't hurt the vegetation. Isn't that interesting? Don't hurt the vegetation. That's what locusts do. They eat vegetation. They cause famine. These locusts are specifically told, don't hurt the vegetation. Because this is not a famine for bread. When we think for a moment, when we have a relativistic worldview that is that social mores and, cult and ethics are culturally defined 
that there is no absolute truth. First of all, nobody believes that. Not in reality. If they do, take their car keys. The emptiness of their worldview will be exposed very quickly. But when they have nothing to cling to, when their governments fail, when laws and injustice rule, when injustice rules, what are you going to cling to? When you begin searching for truth, but you've abandoned the one thing that can bring you to that truth, you've abandoned God and the torment of your soul. This is why so many, why so many philosophers kill themselves. Only these people are not allowed to kill themselves. They just dwell in the torment, searching for truth and never finding it. We should also note once again that this locust plague, that authority is not inherent, but they are given authority. We should also know who it does not affect. This is very important. Notice who this does not affect. I think this helps support my conclusion. It does not affect those who have the seal of God on their forehead. You'll recall back in, I think, chapter 7, we saw the people of God sealed with the seal of God. And what was the seal of God? We, we interpret that based on chapter 14. The seal of God is the name of the Father and Son written on their forehead. These are believers. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the 144,000 are not literal Jewish people. It is the church militant. It is the church on earth who fights against evil. Because this goes back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 9, the angel is told, seal the people of God who mourn for sin, who long to see righteousness done. Seal those people. Everybody else get afflicted by the plagues that are coming. But those who love God, those who mourn to see righteousness, those who despise injustice, those who love the Lord, seal them, everybody else, is fair game for the plague that is going to come. You locusts, you will not harm the earth. You will not harm the vegetation. You will harm all of those who have no hope in Christ. So chapter 7, 144,000 refers to the church militant, not to 144,000 Jewish people. I mean, if those 144,000 people brought one person to the Lord during, between chapter 7 and chapter 9, does now those 144,000 get spared, but that one person doesn't because he's not of a particular tribe? No, this is talking about the church. The church here on earth who is fighting against the wickedness and oppression. This is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, and the church is fighting evil and is standing for righteousness' sake. 
Only God can shield you from this plague. Only God can shield you and give you hope when everything collapses around you. There is no person who has the ability to avoid these locusts, this demonic plague. None of you have that ability in and of yourself. You can think, well, I have a worldview or a system or a philosophical belief that is going to allow me to endure whatever happens to come. It gives me hope now that there will come a day where you will long for truth, but you've denied the truth. Here's the lie. Don't believe God and His law. And it may give you temporal pleasure for now. Because you're going to do whatever it is you want to do. But when the world systems start collapsing, any other worldview other than the one that is that comes out from the Scriptures will leave you wishing you were dead and looking for truth and desiring truth. But you've rejected the truth. Who has hope? The one who has put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and has the name of God and the Son written on their forehead. When, when, world, when governmental systems collapse, when judicial systems outlaw righteousness and endorse unrighteousness and we can say I have hope because my hope is in the God who conquers my hope is in Jesus Christ who lived forever and is coming again and even if you put me to death I still live in righteousness and with the king of kings forever do what you will Satan will attempt And so God is the one who seals us. Satan, we're going to learn, comes up with a counterfeit seal. We'll see that down the road a ways. And that counterfeit seal only makes life miserable. But God will comfort and sustain his own. Folks, we need to be people who are like like the prophet Habakkuk. Listen to what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord my God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on high places. Let everything collapse. I'm going to trust in my God. He has the seal of God written on his forehead. And though the fig trees do not produce, and though the the lambs do not give birth, I will trust in the Lord my God because he is the God of my salvation. This is what we are being called to in chapter 9. That no matter what happens, good or bad, you will trust in the Lord your God. I'm not going to get into the description of these locusts. It is fearsome. I will just simply say this, that the description of the locusts describes the fierceness of this plague. These aren't locusts, locusts. These are locusts on steroids. These are nuclear locusts. The first woe is past. Behold, the second woe is coming. And as we get ready for the sixth trumpet, or the second woe, we see angels prepared for, to unleash this woe. I 
I think what I would like to focus on, at least with this, is to remind us that it is God who rules history. It is the angels who have been prepared for this day and for this hour. I want you to understand that it is God who is sovereign over all things. It is God who is in control. God has left nothing to chance. Events occur exactly as God has ordained them to occur. This is why we read, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were born under the law. At what time? At the right time. In the fullness of time. You remember Jesus? Sometimes they tried to kill him. But it wasn't my time, he says. Oftentimes Jesus says, it's not my time. It's not my time. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then all of a sudden there's a ship. And Jesus sets his, his eyes. He fixes his gaze towards the cross. And he says, my time has come. For many, many years Jesus said, it is not my time. It is not my time. It is not my time. And then all of a sudden, it is my time. And that time is going to come exactly as God said it is going to happen. There is a whole philosophy and a whole idea out there in the Christian realm that believes that God has limited himself, he is self-limited, that he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. It's fairly popular. God knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. If God does not know what's going to happen in the future, I'll tell you this, you might as well stop praying. (laughs) God knows, and these angels are prepared for this day. And the sixth trumpet sounds, and God's restraint is removed, and there is this gigantic army, if you will, that comes across the Euphrates River. Now we should probably pause for a moment and talk a little bit about ancient understanding of the Euphrates River. If you were a Jew, when you thought about the Euphrates River, what would come to mind is this is where your enemies come from. Enemies come from the north. They come across the Euphrates River. The the Euphrates was the boundary. On the other side of the river, beyond the river, that is the Euphrates River, was exile. From the Euphrates River comes the Assyrians, comes the Babylonians, come the Persians. They all come from here. If you were a Roman citizen, what comes from beyond the, the Euphrates was the Parthians, a feared group of horsemen. who threatened the Roman Empire. And so the Euphrates is a a symbol or a sign of that boundary from beyond which come your enemies. And so we see this huge group of this huge army coming and this demonic horde will kill a third of mankind. John says the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. That's... Let me tell you what it says in the Greek. I think it's better. It was two times myriads. 
It was double, I'm sorry, let me be more specific. It was double myriads. It was double myriads. It was a double myriad. Which is really just a large number. This idea of 200 million, I don't think John is trying to, to number them. I'll tell you why. Because myriad is usually not used to refer to an exact number. Do you remember when uh, Rebecca got pregnant? I mean, not weren't there, but you remember reading about it. <laughs> and in the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, it says, And we pray that you'll have myriads of children. They were not saying, we hope that you have 10,000 kids. That was not literal. All right? They're saying, we hope you have a bunch of kids. A bunch. Remember when we saw the myriad of myriads of angels in, in the book of Revelation? We weren't trying to add that up as a figure. We're just saying there's an innumerable number. Well, this is a double innumerable number. Just a really big number. John is not trying to get us to do the math. He's just saying there's this large horde. I believe it's a demonic horde that comes to kill and to wound. And so John then begins to describe this demonic horde and says they're like horses, but they have lion's heads and they have tails like serpents. I don't take that literally. I think even the most hardcore literalists of the book of Revelation take chapter 9 figuratively. And symbolically, there might be a few who believe that there will be beasts that look like horses with lion's heads and serpent's tails. I think John, as is normal in this type of literature, to describe the fierceness of what's going to happen. These are not fire-breathing horses. They're not tanks either. Or at least not only tanks. They bring judgment and destruction and out of their mouth comes sulfur and brimstone. Do you notice the parallel to Sodom and Gomorrah in their judgment? So this demonic horde, I believe this is a demonic force. I believe it can be tied back to the bottomless pit. And it comes and it brings death and harm to men Satan empowers the beast to oppress the people of God and to force them to worship someone other than Christ and this demonic horde is coming across to cause mankind to perish Jesus tells us that wars and rumors of wars are going to come I think Jesus tells us that they're going to increase but don't worry that's not the end yet These things are going to keep happening and they're going to keep increasing. And this demonic group brings death and judgment. This is God's judgment on people. Now here comes the really sad part of this particular chapter. Verse 20. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands 
so as not to worship demons and idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts despite all of this the barrenness of their souls and the the human devastation and still they did not repent I want to be careful here that you understand the truth about God. The judgments, these judgments that we are studying, these are not God's primary dealings with men. God does not begin in this manner. God does not say, oh, you sinned? Here come the demonic hordes of locusts and fire-breathing horses. God is gracious and long-suffering and merciful and patient. And God pleads by His goodness, repent. God has blessed you, given you very, very nice things. He's given you a, a, a roof over your head and He's given you a, a number of good things. All of you are dressed really nicely. He's given you great clothes and you have fresh water to drink. God, by His goodness, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and God's goodness is... His kindness should lead us to repentance. And when that... God not only gives us His goodness, God gives us His Word. To tell you what God desires, what pleases Him, what honors Him, what dishonors Him, how to be made right with Him, gives you his word he doesn't leave you in the dark saying gee I wonder what God expects you have God's word you can know exactly what God desires and how you should live he gives you his word he gave you his son Jesus Christ and he pleads with you look upon my son look upon the communion elements and turn from your wicked ways and turn to me and I will make you whole and I will call you my son and I will call you my daughter God pleads God even used more sterner methods. I remember talking to a guy in a Denny's a long time ago. I probably used this illustration before. And he, it was when I was in Bible college. And he said, oh, you're in Bible college. I've come back to the Lord after many years. I said, what happened? He says, I came home and my wife was gone. The house was cleaned out. My kids were gone. I don't know what happened. They just left. God brought me down to the lowest depths of the earth and to a place where I couldn't get any lower so that I would look up to Him. And I now serve God all my eye. So sorry, began to cry that I've made God do that to bring me back to Him. If His kindness does not lead you to repentance, if His proclamation of His word and His the love of His Son, Jesus Christ, doesn't God may use sterner methods. And even these may fail. And that is the declaration of our text. Now we see that people will not repent. They will continue to reject Christ and re- continue to refuse His mercies. Probably one of our best examples is in, Je- is in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness 
and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans chapter 1. They would not worship God, and God gave them over to a depraved mind. And Satan lies and says, believe that you can live a stable life outside of the plan of God. And when your world crashes in around you, you will be left desolate. And even if not, there will come wars and rumors of wars and death and destruction. And still, they did not repent. The lie is that those who are, that are spared think they do not need to repent. Looks like I got things under control. But I want you to understand, sin deadens our, our sensitivity towards God. And rather than worship God, these people in Revelation, they worshipped idols. And rather than love their neighbor, they killed him. And still they did not repent. Their gods did not deliver them, but rather their... The belief in these idols brought down the wrath of the living God, and yet they refused to turn from the one to the one who will bring life. This is the message of Revelation 9. That God can save you. So I'll conclude with this. Let us commit to a love, to love the things that God loves. Let us not be envious and desirous of the the idols of this world. Because the idols of this world will just bring our downfall. If we begin to love the things that the world loves, we will just, we will be consumed with them. The lies that they will bring temporary pleasure, or that they will bring pleasure. And to be certain, they probably will for a period of time. But as soon as you engage in them, one of two things is going to happen. You will be accused by the accuser and condemned and you will repent or you will continue to believe the lie and you will grow hard and you will not repent no matter what happens I'm calling you now today is the day of salvation today is the time to repent here's our problem we are born in our trespasses and sins and we are dead by reason of our trespasses and sins and we need God to grant us new life we need God to grant us the ability to repent And I will assure you of this. Repentance, I believe, is one of the surest signs of your salvation. How can you know you're saved? You can say, well, I believe the Bible. Good. You should. I think one of the surest signs of salvation is that you grieve over your sin. When you sin, you say, oh, I can't believe that. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, spare me. I don't deserve it. Lord, spare me. And God will bring to you Romans 8 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will bring you um, 1 John, whereas if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He will assure you that your sins are forgiven. I want to assure you today that if you have repented and the liar is telling you you are not forgiven, he is a liar and the father of lies. Believe God's word, not the murderer. God's judgment is terrifying and it is real. But I want you to know, He seals His own and He will keep His own. And no matter what this world brings you, you are His own.
And so we will conclude with this. Will you now turn to the Lord and will you repent and will you live in the joy of the Lord and will you live with him forever as the people of God? Jesus said, the end of Revelation, I will be their God and they will be my people. If you desire that, God right now is calling us to repent. Let's stand and let's sing and let's bless the Lord.